0: Listening to 90.1 FM KKFI Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. My brother, because if you do, you can hear their voices still calling from across the
1: years.
0: And they're crying across the ocean, they're crying across the land. And the whale runs all
1: Dear friends, welcome to Labor Radio Podcast Network Profile Series, highlighting the work of network members. The growing network of over 70 shows in four countries serves as a one-stop shop for audiences looking for labor content and as a resource for labor broadcasters, podcasters, and content producers. My name is Evan Papp and I produce Empathy Media Labs podcasts on labor, political economy, arts, and culture, and we're a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Today I'm speaking with Judy Ansel of the Heartland Labor Forum. So Judy, tell me a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, and what led you to organize labor?
0: Oh shoot! I'm sorry.
1: <laughs> no problem.
0: I got. I got to take this. It's a Yeah, against. please, please, please. Hello. Hi, is Judy there? That's me. Hi, Judy. This is Linda Featherston. Returning your call. Oh, good. Uh, hi. So, um, did you understand my message? So yes, what I think is, are you going to do an interview or a? labor I, radio show it's thursday yeah, afternoon. it's Thursday yeah thursday afternoon and i will invite your opponent i don't know if he'll come on or not um but yeah we're going to have several questions aimed at working class issues and we will ask the both of you to respond and you know let you respond to one another um <laughs> anyway <Hold> on, yeah. <laughs> the, mo- the motto of, on the motto of our show is radio that talks back to the boss so you can get the idea
1: Okay.
0: Thanks, Linda. Yeah. Bye. Sure. Thank you. Uh-huh. Bye. Bye. Well, I don't know if you want to use any of that.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> I love it.
0: Um, well, I am professionally a labor educator and uh, retired a couple of years ago after 29 years running a labor education program at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. I originally come from Chicago and I uh, grew up there in a kind of blue-collar working-class town called Maywood outside of Chicago and learned a little bit about unions because there were a lot of unions around at the time. Uh, There were steel workers, there were teachers unions and so on and so forth, but I really didn't have any direct experience until I became a community college teacher or at least I wanted to become a community college teacher And I was living in the Bay Area at that time. This was in the 70s. And lo and behold, I entered the job market the same year that the community colleges discovered the miracle of adjuncts. And I applied for jobs all over. And I was told, uh, yeah, we have plenty of uh, part-time jobs for you. Uh, But if you want a full-time job, come back in about 20 years because we're full up. And so I ended up teaching at, once. one semester I taught at five different colleges. And, you know, was Zooming, I was one of these freeway people, was Zooming around from college to college. And at one of the colleges, I ran into a table of people who were recruiting for a part-time teachers association. And I said, oh, goody. (laughs) So... um, I, I joined, and this part-time teachers association grew, uh, actually sued the state of California uh, for tenure rights to our jobs, because uh, we were mainly working at part-time, uh, at public school, community colleges. And then we joined the AFT, and eventually I, uh, I sort of settled in working in the uh, San Mateo Community College District, And a couple of schools there and I got active in the AFT there and became an organizer was hired as an organizer About the time that California got collective bargaining for public employee for teachers And so I kind of cut my teeth learning how to organize And so that was my first union experience and then later on I moved to Kansas City and I actually went to work in a factory and joined the, joined the Steelworkers Union, I was a lathe machinist and activist and troublemaker in the Steelworkers Union for about five years uh, before I became a labor educator.
1: That's an incredible story on how you came to labor and what was it like in, in the American Federation of Teachers back then? I, I'm sure it, like every organization changes over time. Uh, was it more militant or was it a little more subdued?
0: Uh, that was the Al Shanker years, and I had actually been introduced to Al Shanker earlier because I was uh, Vista volunteer in New York City in 1968 during the famous school strike uh, over uh, community control of the schools, and Shanker was leading the union in uh, what was perceived by the minority community as a really racist strike, and yeah, it was it it was really one of these setups where the um, Progressive movement could only lose, and they did big time. It was a big split, I think, in in uh, progressives um, right at the beginning of the Nixon Nixon era. And so um, Chanker was it took over the National Union, and and so it was pretty conservative. But in California, you know, winning the right to collective bargaining was a huge breakthrough for teachers. For co- and there was a lot of organizing going on among um, in the community colleges, especially. And uh, so, um, hotly contested between the um, uh, several different unions who wanted to represent them. So, uh, you know, it was a good experience, it was a good learning experience for me, but it was very, very different than working in factories after that. In a way, I kind of got disgusted with organizing faculty. I thought they were, they they didn't understand their own self-interest, uh and many of them just wanted to close the doors of their offices and do their research or you know do do their reading and not be bothered by m- reminders that they still were working class, uh, even though they thought they'd escaped the working class. and so um, i I went to work in factories, I worked in Silicon Valley for a while. non-union, tried to organize a union, uh, which was a really interesting experience um, and and failed because we couldn't get a union to agree to take on the company we worked for because it was huge. And uh, uh, we had an organizing committee and it was really disappointing when uh, we couldn't get a union to to represent us. And then after I moved to Kansas City and I joined the steelworkers and worked in a factory, I got to see what a more traditional union was like, an industrial union, uh, which was, and had lots of really great experiences of solidarity.
1: That's an incredible story. Uh, <laughs> there's so many follow up questions. That's been fun. <laughs> yeah. So, in California, was there ever an effort or an attempt to reach out to the National Labor Relations Board at that time to help with the organizing, or was it more of locally and state focused and just trying to get it together?
0: Well, with community college teachers, the uh, NLRB wasn't involved because was they're state employees. Um, and in the uh, electronics industry, we never got to that point. Um, the company we worked for, which doesn't exist anymore, it merged into a bunch of other companies. We we actually made electron tubes. Um, I, I worked for two years under a microscope. Uh, and aside from affecting my eyesight, uh, it, uh, <laughs> it, it was not a very interesting job, I have to say. A lot of chemicals. Um, And I think the workers would have moved, but the company found out that there was organizing going on and they just started terrorizing us and people were scared to death. Um, So, uh, you know, I learned what a powerful company like that could do uh, to intimidate workers. Uh, And, you know, as you know, Silicon Valley is is almost entirely non-union to this day.
1: So that brings me to the next question, uh, labor news. A lot of people my age have grown up where there was no labor columns in the newspaper. There's almost no coverage of of labor or this class consciousness. And so could you talk a little bit about why you think unions and organized labor are important and why you're spending your time covering it with the Heartland Labor Forum?
0: Well, yeah, um, our show started a long time ago. It started in 1989. And um, it started when we, when basically just a short time after our community radio station was founded, which was a huge opportunity. Uh, we got a show because the IBEW wired the station for free. And in exchange, they were given the right to have a show. And I had just gotten my job as a labor educator at the university and uh, they, they said, oh, let's go get her to do it. <laughs> And so the labor council came and they said, uh, uh, would you be interested in, you know, and we recruited a number of volunteers from the unions and, and, um, you know, began what is called at our station, a group show. I mean, because it is, it's, we have different producers every week and uh, we have lots of people involved, which is is great. So why um, cover labor news and labor issues? Well, that's where most of the people are. Most of the people are workers, and they don't get news in the in the mainstream media. Um, the decline of labor coverage um, just in the last twenty, thirty years has been uh, you know horrible. Uh, we have nobody's a full-time labor reporter anymore. We used to have a bunch of them. We used to have people who understood labor issues, who were reporting on strikes and uh, contract negotiations and organizing drives and now the people who come to cover uh have very little expertise they don't understand what's going on so it's really important to have shows that focus on issues and report them from the point of view of the workers and know what they're talking about and so this whole series of of labor shows that we have across the country i think is a really important addition to the whole media market that exists so
1: i've spent my entire life growing up in the Reagan arena as I like to do it for (laughs) 40 years. And I think we're moving into a new arena and it, it can go much worse or I think it can go better, but covering labor, you've, you've seen labor change over the last 30 years with the Heartland Labor Forum. Uh, what, what are some of your, I I guess what, what have, what have you taken away? What are some of the highlights that you've seen that, that have stuck with you when you're thinking about the coverage over the last 30 years?
0: Well, I remember our first show. Uh, in fact, we still have it on our webpage. Um, it was, uh, we covered the Eastern airline strike, which had just begun when we went on the air and, um, you know, we were out there with our our clunky uh, tape recorders, um, doing uh, interviewing, recording speeches and stuff like that, and, and uh, didn't know what we were doing. I mean, we were a total technical novices, but we, you know, we captured a lot of the spirit of that strike. That was, you know, had picket lines here in Kansas City at the Kansas City Airport, and uh, people got arrested. And um, I, you know, I. I think at that time, we had much more hope for an earlier fight back against sort of the onslaught that had been happening since Reagan. I mean that was 1989, and uh, um, you know we we still we still really believed that uh, you know like things could turn around fast. And 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 you know as time ta- as time has progressed, I've I've noticed that the decline shows up in a lot of different ways. It shows up in um, the willingness to share news on the part of union leaders. It shows up in the um, lack of attention in the media to labor. And yet, there's always been this crew of people who have hope that uh, labor is gonna. This year is gonna be the year of the resurgence of labor, and now uh, we go out and we cover these things, and uh, you know people are always trying. What I think one of the things that's really impressed me is how stalwart working people are, and how much patience people actually have. Uh, we were just covering a strike in St. Joseph, Missouri, a couple weeks ago, where they've been on strike for, oh gosh, six weeks now. Uh, it's a uh, company that makes cans for dog food. And uh, the workers are not very well paid. They're members of the sheet metal workers. And they um, are not well educated. There's very little labor education that's going on these days. But yet, they know when they're really being threatened, and they know what's on the line, and, and, and they're holding up. We went to a rally in pouring rain, and people stood there for two hours in pouring rain. It wasn't very hot, it was warm, rallying in front of the manager's house. And, and, you know, like that kind of belief that your struggle can make a difference is something that just keeps me going all the time.
1: Uh, uh, that's, that is part of the, the hope that I'm finding and the inspiration from the workers who against all odds are, are still standing up to the bosses, uh, which is a part of your show as well. And
0: yeah, and those are the really interesting stories, you know, that you get. Um, I, I tend to not interview very many union leaders. Because they they feel constraints that rank and filers don't feel, you know, because they're political beings and they're always thinking about the next election and how the membership is going to react to this statement or that statement, and so you don't you know you don't get a lot of that fighting spirit from them that makes good radio.
1: Yeah, and especially the Democratic Party for my adult life operating in the Reagan arena. You got Bill Clinton, who really, I, I didn't see much support. The The movement from the new deal Democrats to the new Democrats under Clinton that, and even going into the Obama administration, uh, that's a part of it. And it seems like the Democratic Party in, in a lot of ways, because of their abandoning, at least not having labor in. Center out in front uh, ceded a lot of ground to reactionaries in in over the coming over the the many years.
0: Well, try coming to the Midwest because um, so many of our politicians are extremely cautious and uh, averse to you know taking on controversial issues, uh, averse to looking too militant, and it's it's really funny because uh, you know like. Um, I mean, one of the things we covered was you know primaries, and uh, um, there was a huge contingent both in 2016 and and, and this year for Bernie Sanders. Um, Bernie Sanders won the Kansas primary, believe it or not, in 2016, and uh, you know like there are the there are these people who who you know simply. Go way beyond what the establishment Democrat politicians are 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 willing to do. So you know that's inter- that's interesting to me. I think it's also rather rather sad that there's so little daring, in in among the the political class.
1: Another show that you did was on unionization of nonprofits and living (laughs) in Washington, DC. You know, I, I am, was born in Cleveland, have a lot of family in uh, the industrial parts that are now much of the Rust Belt, grew up in Michigan, uh, lived in Chicago for a while. So I am very aware of that reactionary element, but I've been in DC for the last 13 years and I've lived in that nonprofit world, a lot of it in international development. And there's this do-gooder spirit and mentality, yet you did some coverage on some nonprofits that are actually anti-union and doing some union busting. I don't know if you could say a few words about that. Yeah,
0: well, we were specifically covering the unionization attempt at the ACLU of Kansas, which, um, you know, these 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 are the folks that really significantly helped defeat Chris Kobach, who was the racist... Uh, Trump supporter who was at um, previously Secretary of State of Kansas. And, you know, in many ways, they were heroes to me that of the work they had done. And when they started to, you know, like, and when they became extremely anti-union, I was, you know, I thought it was an aberration among the ACLU. I've come to find out that no, there's a number of ACLU's around the country that have encountered similar things, maybe not as egregious, but the ACLU nationally, is undergoing a union drive right now, which the management is opposing. So it's very, very disillusioning to me that um, nonprofits—and they're not the only ones by any means—that nonprofits are, um, you know, threatened by their own workers instead of understanding that their workers are the lifeblood of their organization. I mean, you know, I look at the work of the ACLU of Kansas, and it's—it's it's not the management people who are do, inspiring people and building the organization. It's it's the uh, field stamp, And they've been absolutely trampled upon.
1: And uh, just one more question about some of the content on your show. You also have covered uh, meat packers and oh, yeah. COVID and uh, that's very much a part of <laughs> industries in the Midwest as well. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about some of the, the coverage you've done on that?
0: It's hard uh, to The meatpacking, there's only one very small meatpacking company in Kansas City. Most of them are scattered, but there's a bunch. Um, There's a huge number out in western Kansas that are unionized mostly. um, uh, Well, some of them are unionized with UFCW. Uh, I'm most familiar with a Smithfield plant in Milan, Missouri, which is a really small, isolated uh, community in north-central Missouri, where they um, produce pork. And uh, so I got involved because I'm actually on the board of the worker center there. And I became aware of the fact that there was this nonprofit in in Washington that was interested in, it's called public justice. It was interested in holding the um, packing houses uh, accountable for health and safety during COVID. And so they sued them. And so we interviewed, we covered that. They sued him for Actually, creating a public nuisance, which I thought was great, uh, and <clears throat> it was thrown out in the courts. The courts deferred to OSHA, which was doing nothing. So we covered all of those kinds of issues. We even got a um, <clears throat> an interview uh, with somebody from the uh, Department of Labor in D.C. Um, about the CARES Act, and uh, you know, and also you know what they were doing uh, to try to protect workers. So we try to cover it from that angle, too.
1: <laughs> I met you through the, the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Could you talk a little bit about why you think such a network is important?
0: Sure. Uh, you know, back in the 90s, we had an organization called UpNet, Union Producers and Programmers Network. We were, there weren't that many of us, but maybe a dozen at the most, probably fewer than that. You know, we were all volunteers. Uh, There were some video programmers as well as audio, radio. Uh, We didn't have podcasts then. And we kept trying to interest the AFL-CIO in supporting us in helping to publicize the importance of alternative media. And we were trying to convince people at that time that, you know, convince the labor movement and labor leaders that their reliance on the mainstream media was, a, you know, not the a, a, a very useful approach because they weren't making any headway, and as we've seen, the mainstream media has really shifted any focus away from labor, unless there's a strike, and we failed in that. You know, we had some great conferences, we shared technical information, but it it eventually just petered out, and I think it petered out from a lot of lack of interest from from labor uh and i guess the time just wasn't right so when i heard about the uh labor radio podcast network and and you know talked to chris garlock and got an idea of how ambitious a project this was and then began attending the meetings i i saw that you know like that they had a little more backing for one there were many more shows and podcasts than I realized around the country. And so I, I, you know, I decided to put some time into it because I think that it's really a worthwhile venture. I think that um, maybe the, you know, the AFL CIO is waking up to the fact that this is a resource for them, uh, and uh, they should support it. And I, I, I'm, hope, I'm hopeful that there will be more support. For our endeavors in that, uh, I think that uh, you know the alternative media has become much bigger than it was then back in the '90s. Lots of people, for good and for ill, are uh, you know listen to alternative media, listen to podcasts, and so I think there's a lot of potential.
1: Well, it's kind of related to my final question. So looking into the future of organized labor, where do you see opportunity and hope?
0: Well, you know, as they always say, it's the bad bosses that get unions. Uh, I think we have a bumper crop of them, you know, around, and the bad politicians as well. I, you know, I think the times have, are really changing and making uh, a, a possibility of a resurgence of the labor movement quite likely. I, I think we're already seeing it. I, you know, we're seeing an increase in strikes. We're seeing an increase in organizing, and I think we're seeing a, a, a really vastly changed consciousness among young workers who uh, understand much much clearer than I think people in my generation or your generation did, which is uh, they under they understand that this is a class struggle, and that uh, the two sides are not going to work it out and that you gotta fight. So that's the main thing I see as far as hope is concerned. You know, uh, I think that uh, our efforts uh, gives me some hope. Um, And, you know, one thing I wish, (coughs) (coughs) sorry, one thing I wish is that the unions would invest more in labor education. I mean, and that isn't just self-serving because I'm a labor educator. But, you know, when I look at the consciousness of union members 40 years ago, 50 years ago, versus what it is today, the level of education about unions, labor history, how do you struggle, what strategy, um, how do you understand your own interests? It's super declined. And I think it's totally linked to the fact that unions in around the 1980s, basically stopped educating their members. And if they did any education, it was very technical education, like shop steward training. Maybe this has been going on longer than that. Um, You know, maybe it's been going on since the anti-communist movement. But uh, McCarthyism. And there was a, a great deal of fear of, you know, like, even using the word class, uh, you know, when I got involved in labor education, which was late 80s um, and early 90s, there was still a, a tremendous amount of fear of being red baited within the, the labor movement just for trying to teach people what their own economic self interests were. And so, uh, you know, like labor itself does not um, uh, understand or appreciate the importance of real. You know, sort of political economy and teaching political economy to to the members, so that you know they understand the trajectory of a of a movement. So that's an ingredient that I'd really like to see developed more. I hope it does.
1: Well, shows like yours uh, are helping to educate people like me, and I'm doing what I can to to learn and. And uh, create my own content and distribute it far and wide. And uh, well, that's
0: great because I think you do great work. And you know, so, uh, some of the people I've met in the in the network uh, are inspiring to me because of the, the, the work they're doing. Um, and they're teaching me things for sure.
1: And same same, I'm I'm just so humbled to be around. I you know, you're your experience in depth in labor organizing, just being on the airwaves for 30 years uh, <laughs> for someone pretty new to this game. I have nothing but gratitude and humbleness. Uh, thank you. You know, and, and so really appreciate it. It's a
0: labor of love. Let me say, you know, it really is.
1: Yeah. Well, Judy Ansel of the Heartland Labor Forum. Thanks so much for uh, talking today.
0: Well, thank you, Evan. It was fun. You better listen, my brother. Because if you do, you can hear. There are voices still calling from across the years. And they're crying across the ocean. They're crying across the land. And they will until we all come to understand. None of us are free. None of us are free.
1: there are people in darkness they just can't see the light if we don't